Greetings, Changelingers. Puka here. This episode is a little bit unusual for two reasons. First, it's quite long and we took a break in the middle, so there's a brief intermission at the halfway mark. Second, it was recorded from five different devices in three different countries with the first half on a non-standard platform, which is also why my contributions sound like I'm trapped inside a telephone from the 70s. The second half is a little better, but there's still some audio issues, so we ask for your patience. Thanks very much, and on with the show. This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with this is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Good afternoon. What are we talking about today, Puka? Today we will be having a sort of roundtable discussion about the role of the Nunahi, a group of indigenous fae in Changeling the Dreaming. And we are honored to have several special guests here to help us discuss the topic. So if you would each like to go around and introduce yourselves. Seal Nagadaloo. Wade My name is Wade, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm an indigenous gamer. I've never created my own modules, of course, written adventures. I've played Worlds of Darkness for years, and when I was younger, I was really into Chains and the Dreaming. It's been a few years for me. I'm a Cherokee language revitalizationist, and I'm really into our culture. It's been hard to use the term traditionalist because nobody's as traditional as their grandparents. But I've been engaged in our ceremonies and um, our spirituality all of my life. And, and I know a lot about um, our neighbors, people like the Choctaws, Chickasaws, Creeks, Seminoles, and Yichis, and Shawnee, and, and sometimes even folks like the Six Nations when it comes to you know traditions, spirituality. I personally really enjoy our traditional stories, and I apprenticed for about a year under a traditional storyteller, but I don't do it professionally. But it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Josh, and thank you, Kuka. belong to the same communities as Wade and uh, my younger brother, who's going to be introducing himself after. Uh, I go by they, them pronouns. I'm a Indigiqueer archivist. I've been playing World of Darkness for a while. I've never had the opportunity to play Changeling or run Changeling, but a longtime werewolf and vampire player kind of discovered this sort of stuff on my own through the years. But yeah, I was raised for most of my life uh, going to ceremonial grounds and Gitwagi, uh, Cherokee ceremonialism. That's really my most of my familiarity and connection to indigenous gaming. But yeah, I've never published anything <laughs> Changeling related or uh, World of Darkness related, but I have had aspirations for a while to do something to address supposed Cherokee representation in Werewolf, and eventually my attention was brought to Changeling through the years. 
Two on the guard, Gahan Dawadon, Dalek Janel Screw. Uh, my name is Liam McAlpin. Um, I am uh, Ia or Poland's sibling. Um, I also grew up um, in our traditional ceremonial grounds um, that uh, Wade and Ia were talk was talking about earlier. Um, I'm currently an undergrad student um, studying Cherokee language education as my major and uh, creative writing as my minor. Um, I actually got my start with role-playing with World of Darkness when I, my sibling and I found a old uh, Vampire the Masquerade book uh, in an old used bookstore. So ever since then, I've been hooked. Um, I've run a couple of Changeling games, um, many vampire games, uh, and other role-playing games as well. never made any modules or anything like that, but I'm definitely a huge fan of Changeling, and um, I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, thank you all for, for joining us and agreeing to participate in this discussion. Just as a housekeeping note, since what I has to leave early, maybe we want to start off focusing on topics that they can sort of speak to more directly. And what I don't know if you have any specific ideas about that, but yeah. Well, you know, I'm really supportive of creativity. And I know that there are very few people in the world that have the opportunity to be immersed in in traditional Cherokee culture. However, people all around the world are playing, you know, role-playing games. And and when I first noticed Changeling, what really caught my attention was that, yes, indeed, there are some, you know, Cherokee ideas, archetypes. And, and no, they're not exactly the way that we use them necessarily, but it really made me feel seen and validated when I when I saw our language in print in the gaming module, Rage Across Appalachia, that really kind of added a lot of, I guess, content for us to be able to use. And even though it wasn't directly accurate to our, you know, our traditions, I also noticed, you know, there was Cherokee in use. Some of our mythological ideas were in use in Werewolf the Apocalypse. I got into those games when I was a young person and I really felt connected because of that and it, and it actually encouraged me to ask more questions of my elders and get to know my own cultural background better because even folks that grow up in our most traditional and isolated communities they only have access to so much and unless they go around and talk to specific people and ask the right questions they don't always get access to some of the deeper knowledge that that a lot of people might be interested in. For me, the role-playing games helped help fuel that fire inside of me. And, and to some degree, I feel like storytelling, running games, game mastering, DMing, all of that influenced me when I started learning stories from our elders and, and going to children's different groups like schools, different festivals, having the opportunity to tell our traditional stories, I think that my gaming and, and my interests and things that, that are really tied to the imagination helped me with my own exploration of my native background. And, you know, I, I do believe in these stories. Folks that play these games, they, they come from all over the world. And, you know, everybody has different backgrounds and different belief systems. But my life experience has given me, I guess, what you could consider 
anecdotal evidence, direct experience of at least things that are considered mythology by most people. So even though the, the gaming helped spike my interest and, and fuel my curiosity, as I learned more and more about our traditions and, and these beings that are in our stories that we still have active spiritual relationships with, the less comfortable I was feeling being able to use these characters um, creatively in, in fiction. I don't think that people should be censored necessarily for using Cherokee ideas, Cherokee words, studying Cherokee mythology. I don't think that, you know, a person needs to be indigenous to play an indigenous character in any sort of game, especially a role-playing game. But as time has gone on, I've become really aware that for me personally, saying certain names, speaking about these things, even hypothetically, I have to watch myself because I'm not only responsible for my intentions, but I'm also responsible for the outcomes. And I believe that, you know, these spiritual ideas that are referenced in these games, for me at least, and for people in my community, they're very real and engaging in this and could potentially have consequences. And I, I as a, you know, an indigenous person, Cherokee person that loves role-playing games, would love to you know, make these things more accurate, make them, make them more real. But at the same time, the fact that, that I really believe in these things and my relationship to these beings lends me to withhold and withdraw and, and pull back. So this is kind of an internal struggle for me. And, and having this conversation, I think, will allow you help me understand myself better and hopefully educate game designers or people that are playing the game and try to understand where we're coming from as traditional indigenous people when it comes to engaging in spiritual things that may have been transposed into something that was considered to be fictitious in the game. So as someone who identifies as a linguist, I'm going to keep circling back to language in different ways, probably during this discussion. And something that you just said made me think about how, I mean, I, I get the impression I guess, anecdotally, that for a lot of players, particularly players from, you know, a white or Anglo or European background, when they play really any role-playing game that's kind of rooted primarily in the Eurocentric sort of mythologies, I feel as though the term role-playing game, it's the game part that's getting emphasized for them in the sense that they're they're already kind of familiar with these concepts because... As we know, media tends to favor those representations much more heavily. And so they're able to kind of enter that space, but not really, they don't take it as seriously. Whereas from what you're saying, it sounds more like, I almost want to use the term role-playing system more than game, because even though it can and should be distinguished from an actual spiritual practice or an actual ceremonial practice, it's a way to get in touch with those same ideas in a more personal way than maybe just reading about them or just hearing about them. And if you haven't had that represented in, in a, a bookstore or a gaming table before, then I, I think it's really interesting how what that, what that might bring up in a player. So yeah, I mean, the, the use of the word game is something that I, I feel like I'm fixating on here, but it's food for thought, definitely. I love that book. I, I think that you hit it right on the nose. You know, I, I hadn't I hadn't taken that route in my own head, but but that's that's the case. I mean, a role-playing system is kind of what it's become to me. 
And people and I play those themes that are based upon kind of a Eurocentric worldview or something that's, you know, more medieval high fantasy. Um, there's still something um, I learn about my own culture by engaging in, in these cultural paradigms that are outside of my indigenous system. And, and there are certain skills that have to do with visualization as well as uh, the ability to uh, verbalize, you know, a scene around you that, that really come into play when it comes to actually practicing some of our spirituality. Mm. So I think that, you know, any of these role-playing games could, could to some degree lend itself to, you know, enhancing our personal spiritual experiences, especially this person. So, so when I engaged in, in Changeling and saw these indigenous themes appear again and again and again, other the games, Werewolf, the Apocalypse, um, you, you can find it really throughout all the world of darkness. Um, I played a few other role-playing games where there were some native and indigenous themes. And, and those things, even though you can't learn how to be indigenous from reading books, it comes from family, it comes from community. Sometimes the things that you learn in books allow you to reflect on the things that you hear in your community and, and help strengthen your understanding. And there are certain ideas that were brought up in these role-playing systems that were engaging with indigenous um, symbolism or, or fiction that made me really curious on people said about stuff. It gave me a platform, curiosity to, to engage some of, some of the people that were wiser and, and more knowledgeable and it really fed that curiosity. So I think that, you know, for me, it's always been, I can see where some of the potential negative stereotypes could cause issues. However, you know, for the most part, being really grounded in, in, in my identity, I was able to overcome or overlook some of that and see, see it for more positive things. But I also know that, you know, sometimes people get triggered. There's, you know, trauma. There, there are certain things that we stay away from in role-playing games. That's the live-action role-playing games that can cause triggers for people that are victims of trauma. And I think that some of the information, the lore um, that are associated with indigenous characters and indigenous themes and, and these role-playing systems, they could also be triggering the indigenous people when it comes to transgenerational kind of trauma. So there are certain themes that, you know, we, we should probably be aware of the sensitivity in regards to how these historical events or even fictitious events, how they relate to historical events that, that might affect people's trauma. But overall, I personally feel that engaging in this process, these role-playing systems, has been, for the most part, therapeutic and, and life-enriching. And, and when I talk to other Native folks that play these games, they seem to have similar experiences. So I wanted to also ask, before we did the recording, you had pointed out a Again, I'm sorry to keep bringing this back to language, but that's my whole thing. Uh, one of the sort of, I guess, overlaps in the terminology specifically that's used in Changeling is the use of nonahi and nanahi. And you you gave us a wonderful uh, deconstruction of kind of the different terms. And I wonder if you could just go into that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a trained linguist. Um, I got my undergraduate in Native study law, policy, and education, and I got my master's degree in second language acquisition. And professionally, um, I'm a manager of our adult immersion um, programs in Cherokee Nation. I worked for several years in immersion 
I worked closely with linguists and I'm kind of an ethno-linguist. So I try to come about it from a Cherokee perspective. And through that process, we found some linguistic forms and functions and the language that can only be recognized, identified, and understood from a Cherokee to English translation because some of the things are lost when we go from English to Cherokee, skipped over, and our linguists have not been able to fully map out our language. It's polysynthetic, a lot of different things coming together. One word in Cherokee is a sentence or sometimes even a paragraph in English. So it, it can be really challenging. And I know that probably, you know, a lot of the themes, the words that we're taking and, and taking and putting into the White Wolf's gaming systems in regard to Cherokee words and ideas were probably taken from uh, Mooney, James Mooney. He wrote this sacred form of Cherokee. About 100 years ago, it was published. He did his field work in the 1890s all the way up through the 1820s. And um, Mooney's works are famous. Uh, they're probably one of the widest read um, native mythology um, compendiums. And I, I think that it's valuable. Most of the, the stories he, he captured were, were vivid, detailed, and accurate. There are some things that were left out sometimes, you know, and some things might have been misunderstood or misrepresented or just misrecorded. But for the most part, it's good. And, and coming from, you know, Cherokee community, I can proudly say that we are one of the most documented and well-studied tribes out there. And despite that, all those folks that were writing about us were not Cherokee. They weren't writing for a Cherokee audience. And uh, that's starting to change. You know, indigenous people are starting to write for themselves. They're starting to write for the world. But for the longest time, we just had to make do with what outsiders said about us. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it kind of got lost in translation. So this Nene word, I think it, it's translated as uh, they live everywhere or they eventually live everywhere. And it could be that. But, but when I've talked to elders, what it's really referring to is not just everywhere, but all, at all times. So immortals, these are immortals. So uh, revered dead, you know, we, we have ancestors, but most of the time the ancestors have a spiritual connection to us and, and um, aren't expected to pop out of burial mounds and come and fight fights on their behalf. But these Nunehi in our, in our legends did exactly that. They came from the burial mounds and they fought on our behalf. So they're not just the ancestors or spiritual beings, but they are ancestors that, that come back physically and engage in the mainstream, real mundane world. And so that, that idea, the, the root of the word Munehi is, is the word Onehi. So if you're talking about a group of people and you're saying um, they live somewhere, you can say, you can name the place like Georgia, then say Onehi, they live in Georgia. So you're saying Onehi. So Oneha is, is a verb that means that they exist. It could be interpreted as alive. They are alive. But when you, when you say Nunehi, not only are, are they alive, they kind of have a transitive prefix that's put on the front. It's plural, it's third person, it's transitive. And then there's a little in right on the very front of the word that, that creates um, context. And the context is always specific to the sentence. But in regards to these beings, the context is specific to time. 
So they persist throughout time. They exist throughout time. And the word is, is not often used in everyday Cherokee language because this context doesn't come up. But when it does come up, our elders know exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual beings, probably our ancestors, that manifest here and engage with us. Not quite the same as a ghost, probably not quite the same as um, a fae from, from the old one. However, there are groups of beings that we can consider very similar to like the house elves, um, fairies, we can call them, um, the good folk. On my non-Cherokee side, most of my dad's family is in Cherokee. Uh, on their side, I'm descended from the Wizard of Ray, which was a guy named Ray Mackay. And um, he was a fairy doctor. So he would work with the spirits of the land and, and help heal and cure people. And that story was passed down in my family. And in our traditional Cherokee communities, they engage in the same way with very similar spirits. And these are spirits that are very hard to talk about because um, we, we talk about them very carefully. <laughs> but another word is nonehi that they use for like, you know, a, a subclass of the changeling kith. Nonehi is related to the word nonyehi. So if somebody is... Um, indigenous to an area like, or, or even better, flora and fauna when it comes to plants or, or animals that are indigenous to, to North America, they'll say, Nagehi, that that thing is, it still has that same root, that ehi root, to, to exist, live, persist, dwell at. But, but when you say Nagehi, you're saying that that thing is indigenous, that thing is local, it was its ancestors were here and still here. And Nanyehi is a plural of that. And um, Nanyehi is just, I don't know exactly how we can translate it, but you can see that as a dialectual variant of the same idea for the word uh, native or indigenous. So, so these words, Nanyehi and Nunehi, they seem really related. They seem really closely related etymologically, you know, as well as phonetically. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, when you read about the Cathane and, and the Kith that are regarded as indigenous fae when it comes to changeling, they're not a lot different than, than how they're described in the source books. And it's exciting because we hear about these beings and some of us have interacted with them and all of us know people that have interacted with them. So, so we believe in them. Even, you know, the, the werewolf, Uktin, it's not something that's just a story for us. These are things that we have relatives that have seen them. We have relatives that have worked with them on a spiritual level, and some have even worked with them on a, on a physical level. So when you start to engage in, in the role-playing system, and there are certain words that we can't say or we call their attention. There are certain ways that we have to talk about them where if we accidentally capture their, their attention, we have to maintain a good relationship with these spiritual beings. And as I pointed out, sometimes they physically manifest. And so they're not just hypothetical. They can be interactive in a way that can be very positive to our lives, potentially less so. And so if we're playing these role-playing games, the role-playing systems, as, as you so well put it, we, we have to be aware as indigenous people um, what we're doing and how we're doing it. And, and it's not the publisher's fault. It's not their responsibility to police you know, what we say and what we do as, as indigenous people, but 
but if I want to stay true to my system and true to my background and, and honor of what it is that I've been taught, then I have to approach these these things that have inspired me, um, that have given me joy and skills and knowledge and, and curiosity interest. I, I have to find a way to engage with these systems that are not not insulting to the spiritual entities that I've formed relationships with through the years. Yeah. One of the few changes in the upcoming Werewolf 5th edition that seems like a positive one that I'm aware of is that I think they have actually changed the names of those groups in the game too. I know there was previously a movement to just refer to them as um, Elder Brother and Younger Brother because they are also referred to that in the game lore. And now I think they have other other names that are kind of more in line with the other werewolf groups. But yeah, yeah so it's a rare case of people actually speaking up about this and the, and the publisher actually listening, which is such a rare thing. So it's, it's really, it's really a positive development. That's something I like about the world of darkness gaming systems is they, they listen to the people and they do try to think about what is good for the community and what is good for the players, what is good for, you know, society as a whole. And, you know, I had heard that those things were going to be changed, and, and I have mixed feelings about it, because on one hand, you know, we have to be careful about saying these things. We have to be careful about how we engage, and even the, the symbolism of these spiritual beings, because their names are tied to who they are. But on the other hand, I believe there's a little bit about these systems that are that are true you know even in the lore they talk about how it's human engagement with belief how it's human engagement with the potential of reality that lends these beings their glamour and i think that there's a little bit of, of truth to that because as a young cherokee person i was encouraged to pursue my spiritual ancestry on a different level than other people in my family, partially because of the words that were used in these gaming systems, partly because engagement in these gaming systems with my imagination and my curiosity, they help bring these spiritual beings to life in me. So on one hand, I really like the idea that they're changing the names out of respect, but there's also a part of me that, that feels like, like we're losing something. And so that's why I say that as an indigenous person, I know that I have to follow certain roles but the thing is, my roles may not be the same as your roles or somebody else's roles. And it's quite possible that, you know, we can talk about these things as ideas without engaging them spiritually. And I think that when people don't believe in them spiritually, that's even more likely. So a person that doesn't believe in these spiritual beings talking about them in a, in a you know, fictional setting may not have the same sort of issues. And our, our elders teach us that we have to have belief in our medicine and our spirituality to have the, the spiritual investment to, to engage in it and to form those relationships that are necessary to, to use it. So I, I, you know, even from our traditional background, belief is a, is a core element. If people are using these beings and not believing in them, they probably aren't engaging in them. But it's, it's also possible that they are, because sometimes um, somebody will come to a medicine person and they'll talk to that medicine person. That medicine person says, hey, somebody did something bad to you spiritually. 
And that person that came to him for help will say, I don't believe in that. I don't believe that that's true. And that medicine person will say, it doesn't matter if you believe in it because it believes in you. So there's, you know, a, a potential challenge for even people that don't believe in these things and use it. So on one hand, I want it to be just as accurate as possible. I want for, for people to understand as much of it as, as, as they can to stay true to it, to, to give it honor, to give it respect, to give it validity, at least as, as a belief system. But on the other hand, there's also this idea of you know, respecting this being's privacy, respecting this being's um, rest or repose, and we don't really want to challenge them, wake them up or engage them. Not not for the purpose of of, a, of an evening role play. So you know, I'm I'm of two minds about it. I'm conflicted. On one hand, I really like the representation, and on the other hand, not all representation is good representation. It'd really be nice to have discussions with with the creators of, about some of these things. I am dutifully taking notes. Like, <laughs> no, I'm I'm loving this. And you're like, so specifically giving words to things that I've had struggle articulating in the past. So yeah, no, I'm, I totally appreciate this. Yeah, same. Awesome. So I live in the Ashinaba, Ashinabiwaki, I think I said that, yeah. right? uh, territory region. And then Changeling, there's a lot of Cherokee terms. When I'm, and I'm usually running games in this area, not in this city, but in the same region, right? Does that change things for what I'm like how I should approach things if, if there's a lot of these Cherokee terms and beliefs being used here I know it's not exclusively drawn for it, but it seems like that was the sort of back when they did the uh, rage across Appalachia that was like the big yeah seed there so we have stories that these beings exist all across not just the continent but the world and they're certainly can't call them by their name but they're not large, and they look like humans. But according to our stories, they have amazing, miraculous. And they can become large, but they're generally seen as small. They're often found in the woods. Um, they could be potentially dangerous. However, for our medicine people, our Cherokee medicine people, there are helpers that, that help sustain our medicine, our spiritual belief system, and uh, they become teachers to our elders, they become teachers to our children, and um, they, they live in Ireland, they live in, in Western Europe, they live all over the world, they live in Canada, they live everywhere, and, um, and they have conclaves. So they're always associated with the human community, and they, they speak the language of the human community that they're near. And they often dress in a way of the human community that they're near as well. And they follow those cultural patterns, but they don't do it in a contemporary fashion. They do it in a very archaic fashion. So, so you wouldn't see one of these living around Cherokees dressed as a modern Cherokee, but maybe as a Cherokee during colonial times or pre-Columbian times. And so up in Anishinaab territory, you're going to find these beings dressed like their ancestors. And our elders teach us that these beings are not just separate, but they're part of humanity. They're part of us. And for our elders, they can go to these beings and they can say, we've lost this, this cure, this medicine to help somebody with this situation. And they can, they can be reminded of that, 
that medicine, that help from these spiritual beings. So they provide continuity as well as many other things. But we have to be really careful how we talk about them and how we engage with them. So I think that those beings that live up where you are not only speak their native language of the indigenous people, they probably understand English and French and and they have confines where they meet and, and they engage with people like them from all over the world. And, and one of the people that they engage with are Cherokee peoples. And some of those Cherokee people's names for these beings are, are spoken of in, in our role-playing system. So I'm sure that these local beings that you're around are hearing what you're saying. And um, they may be amused by it. I seriously doubt they're offended by it. Um, you never know. It's hard to guess what anybody else might be offended by. But one of the things you can do is, is talk to them. And this was taught to me by, by an elder of another tribe when I was really young. He said, even our own indigenous people have forgot how to maintain good relationships with these spirits. But, and I, and I was living in, in western Oklahoma, away from my Cherokee people. I went there for school. And he said, take, take your tobacco and go out there to them and talk to them in Cherokee. He said, they might be Comanche, they might be Kiowa, they, they might be associated with these other groups of people. They may speak that indigenous language, but I guarantee they'll understand your intent. And the fact that you're engaging with them in the most respectful way that you know how, you give them something, something sweet, something um, like a piece of candy, a little piece of tobacco, light a cigarette and lay it on a rock. Or just sprinkle the raw tobacco on the ground there. By engaging with them in that positive way, even if they're not from your territory, even if they're not from your people, what you're doing is you're creating a relationship between them and you, their people, your people, and it enriches your life. They, they want good relationships. And so my advice is, you know, don't, don't shy away from these words or ideas. But try to engage in it and engage with them in a really positive way. And, and I pointed out earlier that we're not just responsible for our intentions, but we're responsible for our consequences. But we've learned these things through generations. These, this knowledge has been passed down. And one of our teachings says that we're not just responsible for what we've, what we've learned ourselves, but we're also responsible for the information that's been passed down to us. So we have to engage our elders. We have to engage our knowledge keepers to ensure that this information is maintained because we're responsible for it. Even though it wasn't given to us personally by some spiritual being, it was given to our ancestors. And, and our ancestors were supposed to pass it down to our elders, to us. And sometimes we have to pursue it. So I think that, you know, if you're going to use these spiritual beings in a positive, or use these... Uh, names for the spiritual beings, the, the likeness of these spiritual beings, even in a fictitious sort of gamey way, uh, role-playing system, I'm not saying that you should necessarily engage in traditional indigenous spirituality, but if you're led to, to give a positive acknowledgement to these beings, then that's probably your spirit talking to you. If it's a thought that's popped into your head, a concern that's popped into your head, it's your spirit talking to you. Without you two ever being aware that your spirits are talking, you walk away from, from that moment 
with a, a different understanding of that person. It's because your spirit's talking to each other. And so there are these spiritual beings all around us. So your spirit is talking to them and they're talking to us, whether we realize it or not. Well, our intuition is generally a pretty good guide of, of how we should how we should engage. And and I don't think that we should live in a world of fear. I don't think that we should be afraid of things. I think fear is opposite of what we want. In fact, um, being afraid of somebody doesn't necessarily show them respect. There are some some things that that feel like um, if you're afraid of them, it's almost um, an insult. Like um, somebody that loves you very much, maybe a partner in your life that you've chosen to spend the rest of your life with. If you looked at them and told them in the face that you're afraid of them, they would be hurt by that. Um, you want to show respect, but, but you don't want to be afraid. And, and sometimes showing respect is by not engaging in certain things. But our teachings tell us that if it's something that you need, it's going to come to you. If it's something that, that you need to know, you'll be given that knowledge. If it's something you need to do, then your spirit will will prompt you to do it, maybe through your conscience, maybe through a dream. And I know I'm kind of going off the deep end here when it comes to the spirituality, but if we're going to engage in these things, it's valuable. And, you know, even the more Western Eurocentric um, mythological beings, spiritual entities that exist in these, in these uh, role-playing systems, I'm sure they have power too. And I'm sure that on some level, if they exist, like I believe they do, we should probably show them some respect as well. And, and I think that not just with indigenous Native North American concepts, everybody's indigenous to somewhere. Everybody has an indigenous culture somewhere, someplace where their people are from. Ancient stories, ancient history, ancient belief systems, practices, and values. Everybody has that, and it's tied to a land base somewhere. And sometimes people will get up and move, and then they reattach to that land base. And, and they start that reconnection and that relationship again. As populations move, they reestablish this relationship with the land. That's how it was for, for hundreds of thousands of years. That's changed in the last 2,000 years. It's really changed in the last 500 years, where people now are not connected to the land in the way that our ancestors were. They're not connected to the people that lived on that land when we settled it. Um, when Cherokees were removed from the Appalachian Mountains during the time of the Trail of Tears, we were brought to Indian Territory, where we're now in the state of Oklahoma. We displaced indigenous people that were here, not, not because we enjoyed it, but because we were put here. There are 39 different tribes in Oklahoma. And there were already people living here. And yeah, their populations were decimated or actually annihilated by, by disease and, and warfare, but there were remnant populations that were here then. They're still here now. And we are on our land. We're on stolen land here in Northeast Oklahoma. And so when I go out and I engage with Cherokee spiritual entities on this land, I have to be aware that I brought these things with me. My ancestors brought these things with me to this land because there were already indigenous things here. And because I, I do come from this indigenous background and my 
my community, our Cherokee people, they've engaged in the land. They've engaged in the descendants of the people that originally held this land. And I'm not saying that we've done everything right or everything good, but we do have an indigenous relationship with this land that, that haven't gone through that same process, that didn't have that same indigenous worldview, probably didn't engage in. But their ancestors probably will have. There's been, there's been a shift over the last 500 years. And I think that not only is everybody indigenous to somewhere, but, but even those places they were indigenous to, they had to have settled at some point. So there was a way to attune to the land. I think part of that process is by giving respect to the values, the beliefs, and the traditions of the people that were on that land before you. And I think that, you know, role players, because of their engagement with their imagination, their engagement with concepts that are very abstract and far afield from, you know, the everyday mundane world, they're sensitive. In general, not everybody, but, but maybe in general, what I've noticed is they're a more sensitive group of people, more self-aware, more aware of um, the symbolism of the world around them. And, and I think that that's why we're even having this conversation, because where else is, is this conversation taking place but in regards to role-playing systems? I think that as a role player, as somebody running a game, as somebody, you know, engaging and just being a part of it, it gives you not only the, the opportunity to engage with these indigenous spiritual entities, but it gives you the opportunity to um, show respect, to form, you know, maybe minimal but positive relationships. Maybe it even provides a responsibility to think about the overall impact of what it is we're doing and how we're doing. One of the ironies is that a lot of what you're saying very much applied to the European conception of the fairies hundreds of years ago, like you said, 500 years ago, maybe. And yet that's something that has just totally fallen out of that culture. I mean, using terms like the good folk rather than actually saying their names, that was a big deal. (laughs) So that's true. I, I think, you know, when I engage in Western culture, I, not everybody has this, but there's a large segment of the population that has a longing that it's hard to articulate what it is, but this longing, this need. I think it causes some people to return to the spiritual roots of their ancestors, engage in um, cultural practices of their roots, maybe maybe religious practices of their roots. And sometimes it, it means that they're they're drawn to, to native spirituality and native themes. And, and sometimes they can, out of an effort to be affectionate or supportive, could accidentally misappropriate things or be insulting at times. But in an effort and an affection for, for different cultures, there's a root of that that has to do with the longing for connection belonging for um, belonging, uh, for engagement. And I think that over the last 500 years, we've lost that connection as a whole, as a Western society. We've, we've lost that connection. And I think that role-playing games allow some of us to kind of regain some of that. And for me, it was certainly an avenue into regaining and strengthening my, my indigenous connection. But I think that more than that, it provides us with an opportunity to look at things differently 
and engage in a conversation based upon that that unique perspective of what it comes from, what it means to come from a culture that's really engaged in imagination and impossibility and abstraction, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, even if it's a fictitious character, that changes people's way that they look at the world and engage with the world around them. And I think that for role players, it, it allows us an opportunity to look at not only the world differently, but but see how to engage in it in a way that that we can make things better for other people as well. What I mean by that is is through discussions like this, even if it's just sitting around the table late at night during a break over Mountain Dew, discussions like this allow us to dream ourselves and to engage in things in a way that other people don't take the time to do. And that could be finding a way for our, the Western world to reconnect to something that, that they've lost contact with. I'm not saying that we should all be fairy doctors and go back to Ireland and Scotland. Or, but I, I know that, that all over the world, there were something akin to what we call the good people. In Cherokee, we call them our little friends. Something, something akin to our little friends all over the world that, that not only connected us to the land, connected us to our own cultural traditions because these things they may be immortal but if they're not they're very long lived and the same old spiritual being can teach several generations of contemporary people that's how these spiritual beings are for our people all around the world and at one time when we were engaged with the land with our own people in that regard in such a way that we were building this um, imaginative dream reality alongside our social consciousness, alongside our religious consciousness, this could be described as spirituality, but there's a, a mystical aspect to it that, that we know that that tree over there is just a tree, but what if it's something more? You have to be able to engage in that level of thinking to, to participate in these traditional belief systems. And so, our people had these ways, but on top of that, when our people were forced to move from one place to the next, or needed to move from one place to the next, this way of living, this way of engaging with the land, this way of engaging with our, our culture, our spirituality, allowed us to um, attune to the land in a way that, that you know, Cherokees probably, well, I know, according to our stories, we didn't always live in the mountains, even before we came to Indian Territory, Oklahoma, we didn't always live in the Appalachian Mountains. Our story said we came from an island in the south, but we see ourselves as indigenous now to northeast Oklahoma, previously to the Smoky Mountains. We see ourselves as indigenous to those places, but we came to those places. And so there was a process of greeting the land and getting to know the people and the place and then finding a, a place of belonging there. And, and I think that, that role-playing games lend themselves to that feeling. And so when I do talk to role-players that are not indigenous, that come from different cultures, they often talk to me about this sense of, of belonging, the sense of being attached to a system that's much bigger than themselves, a different concept of community than somebody that probably just collects, you know, Jordan shoes. Um, there's a different different depth of identity in regard to that and a different connection 
and belonging to other role players that most you know hobbies just don't have. And, and I think it's because of that ability to engage in the the potential, the possibility, the imagination, and have a regard for different cultures, different traditions, and possibly the existence of other spiritual beings or non-physical beings or what some people might consider mythological. Because even though folks that engage in them, you know, the Western style role-playing games, they probably don't believe that there's, you know, a, a dragon somewhere in their backyard necessarily, but you get them out in the woods late at night, they will start to imagine things that may or may not be there. And, and they're probably going to be more open to that possibility to somebody that than somebody that doesn't engage in that level of interaction with the mental and, and the metaphysical. In Changeling, like there are conflicts of like banality and there's conflicts of like different cultures for sure. But they all, there's also sort of um, a running theme, especially in some of the later books of like dark entities or bad, like, in, and you know, your characters might be in opposition to them. Is that something in terms of these drawing on with Nunahi and, and Cherokee belief, like makes sense or should be done in a game? And if so, how, like generally would you approach that? I think it makes sense. It's, it's not inherent to the, the system as it exists in, in our indigenous tradition, but the banality, and, I mean, it's not something that we engage in, but, but I think all of us can look at the world through that lens. And if you entertain the existence of these spiritual beings existing on some level, you can see how that mechanic could potentially work. And I, I don't think it's insulting all to the you know actual indigenous systems i think it's a way to engage in this um, dichotomy of belief and non-belief a fantasy versus reality a potential versus okay yeah no i, I, I was sort of asking like yeah the banality thing i get because we're talking about like respect being respectful and whatnot but there's right. entities in the game right that are portrayed as the villains right 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 and that's where I'm wondering how that could be done res- respectfully in a story that you're role-playing, if that makes sense, uh, or if that is yeah, possible. I, I think that any effort to do it is, uh, you know, sets a, sets a high bar period. However, when it comes to the specifics, you'd probably have to engage authentic lore or possibly knowledgeable people uh, about these spiritual entities, because... You know, there, there are things that are written about in these books that I, I just don't know anything about, or I know very little about. And on the other hand, I, I know a lot about, you know, the, the real world versions of, of these Cherokee beings. I don't know much about the real world versions of these other, other beings related to other spiritual or cultural systems. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, but like from a Cherokee, if you're, if you're talking about Cherokee beings, right? Like mm-hmm. in Changeling, yeah. it's not presenting like, and again, maybe this is just a thing that leave out of the game, but like, there's definitely like, okay, well, you'd have like the Nunahi, and that's like your player characters, maybe, or the friendly NPCs that are maybe, hopefully, you're, you'd want to be allied with. But then there's also like dark entities or right. things that you don't want to. You don't want to. Yeah, and to. you might be, you might be playing a game where you're like the heroes fighting against them, kind of thing. And like that's that's where I'm trying to figure out with respect. Well, and we're talking about not talking about things, and yeah, yeah, we have those in 
that are bad guys here, and sometimes we don't name them. Yeah. But I think that there's kind of a buffer. A person that has direct relationship with these things in their daily life has a different um, responsibility than somebody that's engaging through a role-playing game. And I think the role-playing game can be used as a springboard to um, engage them on a deeper level. But on the surface level, I don't think that um, these things pay much attention to when people are playing make-believe together. I think they, they probably notice, probably take note, then move on. But these bad things that, that exist in our stories and exist in our tradition, we believe in them and, and we don't name them. And sometimes, and, you know, they're written about. I, there's not a lot of Cherokee ones that I would consider to be that have been written about in, in the source book materials or in, in the role playing game materials that I would that I would concern myself with avoiding, you know, on a on a role playing level. But I I know that there are some other beings um, that are, that are mentioned. I don't even know how to talk about them. That uh, you're not supposed to say their name, but everybody says their name. They're all over the TV. They're 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 widespread. They're when people talk about native mythology, these are the beings that their names they pop up, and so people are aware of them. I think what you could do is if you have a concern that you may draw negative attention, then either fully embody the protection that your character is going through. What, how is your character protecting themselves from these beings in-game? And if you're engaged entirely in that level, that is the only level that you're engaging the negative spiritual beings in. So if you're engaging them through role play, whatever precautions and methods you use to battle them through role play should be enough to protect you in, in the outside world and the non-dreaming world. But um, if you if you you know you start feeling creepy, you you feel like these things might been aroused, then everybody, no matter what background they're from, even atheists, secular humanists, they have techniques that they use to make them feel feel better techniques that they use things that they say to themselves things that they do for themselves that that strengthen their confidence that chase away their fear that bring them back to a positive sense of self a positive way of thinking there are all these different cultures um, from all around the world that have different ways of doing this sometimes they consider it spiritual they may burn something they they may recite a prayer if a person is feeling like they're engaging in something bad and it's not taken care of through the role-playing process of engaging it, and they feel like it's manifesting on some, you know, real-world level, then they should undertake whatever process it takes to make them feel safe, protected, and secure. But it's like that if you're watching a scary movie. It's like that if, if, if um, you have a bad dream. Whatever, whatever sort of situation that you find yourself in where you're challenged, maybe on an intellectual, emotional, or spiritual level, there's there's always a potential solution, and I think that everybody has something in their background that allows them to to um, engage in a positive way and rectify that negative situation. Okay, so I, I have to say, yeah, this whole conversation, like, it, I never thought about things this way because I was always thinking, like, what's the concern here? What's the harm? I always was thinking in terms of being insulting to people. I don't want to be insulting to people, basically, or disrespectful. Yeah, but. You, you seem to be talking more about good or harm to the person playing the game or to me or to whoever's engaging in this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I never thought of because it that it, way before as, as the concern. Because if a person, 
If a person wants to role play a racist Nazi werewolf and nobody else in the room gives a flip, Mm-hmm. They're still really just hurting themselves. <laughs> yeah. know, well, I mean, it's also I tend, to, I tend to run games, right? So, like, oh yeah, I yeah. mean, maybe I do. As a storyteller, I'm playing the racist Nazi werewolf, be- right? Because as the opposition for the player characters is the well, villain, absolutely. right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and you know, especially I'm, I keep thinking of Rage Across Appalachia, and there's some particular umbral spirits that are given some finite names that I've been concerned about using for, for a long time. Like, I, I never thought to even consider using them, and I have worried about folks using these sorts of spirits and their werewolf for changeling games. But but I think, I think that there isn't really a difference, Josh, between, like, other than perspective and looking at the, the harms that may come to you or to your players, versus the being respectful and not like overstepping certain bounds. I mean, like gaming has come a long way with lines and veils. And I think depending on how you look at the situation, I think that this can definitely provide, yeah, provide folks, uh, you know, understanding that the embodiment of the characters and that what even imaginary is still real. Yeah. And, I, you know, things don't have to spontaneously manifest in front of you to not have an effect on you. So that's all, all that I was kind of pointing in there is that. And right. I, I would, you know, to put a word to it, you can bleep it out or whatever. But, like, I mean, don't don't use in games, but especially if you have Cherokee players, but maybe even if you don't. But I do have indigenous villains. I do think that indigenous villains are totally valid in games, be it Werewolf or the Urge Worms. In one of my games, there's a, a duchy that is led by Therifuge, and Therifuge is an indigenous villain and a victim of epidemic and disease brought by colonization and then accepted it spiritually and now feeds on it. And I think that there's places in like looking for and you know maybe this isn't something that like folks that don't have connections to indigeneity like i don't know how comfortable other folks would be utilizing this stuff but like it has a very real place like in my games in my table i i have to leave i I apologize i have to leave early but it's really clear to me that you are left in very capable hands with the Calpin siblings and and i look forward to listening to the podcast and it was an honor and a privilege to be here thank you so much for coming and being on this yeah, thank you, Puka. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, I hope to talk to you again sometime. Yeah, we'd love to have you again. All right. Oh, dog, oh, Intermission. Welcome back to Changeling the Podcast. I'm still Josh. Yeah, we, we had a brief intermission and now we have returned. I have a question that we could do. We could start. Yeah, with. Go, go for it. Go for it. Okay. So um, the way the Nunehi are written in Changeling, there's a number of system differences between that and them and say the Kithane, right? Um, not access to the dreaming different ways of gaming glamour, things like that. 
What are your thoughts on that? I have a knee-jerk reaction, but I don't. It's not very well informed, so I'm curious what your thought, both of your thoughts are on the, on some of those differences. Hmm. Well, for me, I feel like honestly, initially, like when I was making, when I was doing a changeling game myself, I thought about having more Lunehi like kith in the game, and I kind of had to stop because of like the different mechanics, and I kind of felt it was strange, and I haven't played as them in a while but i'm pretty sure it's the one that kind of has to do with nature if 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 that's correct Mm -hmm. um and it definitely i had mixed feelings because on one hand i felt like it was kind of playing into the stereotype that like indigenous people are just inherently one with nature and have this like deep-seated connection and i do think that it exists i think it's like there is a connection that a lot of indigenous people have with nature but i feel like it has it does definitely have bad connotations or it can. And it's kind of, mm-hmm. um, it's just strange. I feel like if you're going to play on the idea of the dreaming in a game of in Changeling, which is the whole concept, if you want to make a different like system for the Nunehi, then like make a different system. But see, I don't even feel like that's necessary because dreaming and storytelling and belief is such a interesting concept that to me is like so intrinsic to indigenous storytelling and life ways and this could just be my opinion or just kind of how i was taught in my community but i feel like there's ways to talk about glamour and there's ways to talk about the dreaming in general within the game from an indigenous perspective yeah i think it also speaks a little bit to the approach that players tend to have with role-playing games this i think is going back a little bit to what i was saying before about game versus system where The tension that you have, especially in the world of darkness games, is that it's simultaneously trying to be a reasonable facsimile of the different cultures and beliefs and groups in the world, and a mechanical system that can accommodate lots of different things in the same way. So to have different groups engage with the dreaming or engage with the world or with dreamers in different ways, it's like, you know, you can either present it as a problem or present it as an opportunity, you know? So if you have a character who's a Kithane who comes across a Nunahi and through the process of interaction, they come to understand their differences to the player. Does that make them strange and inscrutable or does it, oh, okay, there's more diversity in this game world than I anticipated. I would hope for the latter, but I think that that doesn't always get reinforced in the way that the books are written and in the way that the characters are presented. Yeah, the other, one of the things that's giving me sort of pause too is it's not like red caps in Scotland or you know Gwydion she in uh, in Wales or whatnot like can draw glamour from the land and and the cut off from the dreaming, but you can enter the Umbra stuff like that. Some of the things that was me, giving me pause that I wanted to ask about, but yeah, there's a bunch of different system differences, so you may have different opinions on which of them are appropriate or not or work. I think a lot of this has to do with like the reasoning behind certain decisions, right? So I think the the idea that the Nunehi don't have access to the dreaming due to this like perceived lack of connection in indigenous communities to traditional life ways and culture, I think that that's just like patently false. And it really reflects more of like a, a Eurocentric idea. And I've, I've talked with other folks about this and about the potentials of utilizing Nunehi in different contexts, either as not actual like dreams of indigenous folks, but like white settler colonial dreams of indigenous folks. 
And I think that maybe there's stories to be had there, but I think overall that's it's not necessarily very productive for a gaming setting. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is that I would just have the Kithin kind of have this understanding or, or this thought that the Nuenehi don't have access to the dreaming because they're like easily quiet and quick about accessing it uh, in ways that go below their notice. And I think that largely is reinforced by the history as White Wolf has created it, that Changelings Europe and the settler Fae folk essentially started colonization like a few hundred years before the rest or before like humans did, um, which is kind of wild. But yeah, so as far as like getting the glamour or medicine as the books say is literally just a word that the Nunehi use for glamour from the land. I think I think that there's potential there. Because like as Blood mm-hmm. as Blood was talking about earlier, the like indigeneity is often defined by its relationship to place and to the land. And I think people have this idea and you know you get to the like stories of the Bering land bridge kind of uh, being utilized to devalue indigenous people by devaluing their stake on quote unquote the Western hemisphere. Mm-hmm. But I think that like even within the context of understanding that indigeneity can move and even, you know, including or not including the concept of diaspora, like I think that that kind of that makes sense. And I think that that is something that should be explored in the writing, especially if they're going to write that they get glamour from the land. Like how how does that work? You know? As far as banality is concerned, in the original, like, first edition or two of Changeling, like, it makes sense that the relationships for Nunehi and their acquisition of glamour or how glamour affects them should be distinctly different than Kithane. But as in current editions, I think it makes sense to have a nuanced, individualized approach, just like mm-hmm. the rest of the Kithane. But at the same time, like, acknowledging the kind of baseline, how the baseline might be different. I mean, I could keep talking about this, but there's a lot of mechanics and like ramifications for the like, storyline lore uh, that is kind of embedded within that question for sure. Okay, so I'm not completely off base with my thoughts. That, that helps. <laughs> no, no, and I, you know, some some folks, you know, some folks will say that like accepting the write-ups as they are can be used. You know, I know folks that say mm-hmm. that every ounce of lore that is written is real, even if it contradicts other stuff, in the sense that that is how specific groups see these situations. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Nunehi never got their own splat or their own, like, real write-up really goes to show that, like, everything really is just, like, settling perspective in my brain. And to me, that's the only way I think it works. Like, even just looking at the old books, like, I completely agree with you on that, because I feel like that's the only way it makes sense in my brain. Is like, of course, these, like, settler colonial fae or these changelings would see it, like, Nanehi in this way. Like, because they don't know, because they don't talk to them, because they're not exposed. So in that way, it does make sense. I, just to piggyback up what you were saying, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are mechanisms for connecting glamour to the land, separate from this anyway. So it's like there are glens, there is the the gillydoo kith do things. Like it's, yeah. I'd like to take the opportunity to spin off another question from that, and just kind of open up the very. I I don't want to make too many assumptions about the mindsets of the writers in the '90s, but 
thinking about what must have been going through their heads as they put this together as folks who, to my knowledge, don't have indigenous background, but were, were deeply invested in trying to get it as right as they could from their perspective. So how does that inform the presentation you know, of, of the different Nunahi groups, but then also how they're fit into the mechanics of the game? Yeah, I mean, when, when you look at Native American Heritage Month and you look at even how like the mainstream media kind of connects with indigeneity today, it often is sensationalized. Um, hmm. And even amongst like pan-Indian movement, you've got AIM, the American Indian rights movement back in like starting in the 60s. Uh, you got the occupation of Alcatraz. There's various like points of publicity that the occupation of Wounded Knee had. You had Sashin Littlefeather. Of course, there's been some recent stuff regarding Sashin and people trying to out her as being a pretendian or whatever. But um, there's like that's often how the mainstream media connects to that. Uh, as far as individualized plays, like moving. So I'm from Eastern Oklahoma. Uh, I recently moved to the East Coast uh, school. And interacting with folks out here is so radically different, even like indigenous folks out here. And how there's like this, you know, there's stories of burial mounds like all over the place. It's like almost embedded in the landscape of like whether it's true or not, this kind of like indigenous ghosts, right? It's like unsettling stories. So I, I think that there's, you know, various aspects that there's a lot of doom and gloom, even in Indian country, regarding stuff like cultural revitalization and language acquisition, be it like doing to the dropping numbers of first language speakers. And I think that there's a place for doom and gloom, especially regarding like the public, right? So you have entities that are, might be inclined to provide donations or sway public opinion to provide grants to actually support indigenous language revitalization, um, or, you know, the the fights for the Black Hills that, you know, I mean, that's, it's been over a century in the making. I think that the doom and gloom in those sorts of places regarding like settler white perspectives, uh, but when it comes to indigenous people, doom and gloom can be super harmful. It might be, you know, motivational for some folks, but having like, the discussion of disappearing Nunehi, disappearing people, a loss of connection to banality, or this increased amount of banality and the loss of a connection to culture, despite yet also wanting to prop up this like genetic lineage of Nunehi, that like it's holy people's relationships to these invisible ones that like beget lines of people that the Nunehi come from, according to the original write-ups. So there's definitely like weird space in here. And, you know, I, I don't think, I think that there's always room in the world of darkness for like indigenous representation that isn't pigeonholed into some sort of supernatural reflection of a cultural identity. I mean, you see this like in werewolf, like you can have, and I'll, I'll try to not bring up werewolf regarding every single question, but, you know, it's important to have indigenous class walkers. It's important to have indigenous, you know, silent striders, like a lot of, these tribes and tribal representations of indigenous folks like makes sense to have that outlook but at the same time like have as, as what has been pointing out like providing like decent or even half decent representation of culture 
in these lines can be super impactful for folks. And I, I had a very different interaction with finding Cherokee-ness in the world of darkness. Like I was first attracted to werewolf because I saw the place of, you know, the spirit of pain. And I've talked to folks about like, you know, this stuff is real to me. Like, even if you don't think about it that way, like there's definitely like respect that's here. When I play these characters, I'm role-playing characters that I have to be comfortable with invoking the patron spirit of Octane and older brother set meets and stuff like that. So having that kind of space to correct the shortcomings of the original write-ups, I think requires the fan base to have a little bit more pliancy regarding canon and even, you know, actually adopting the pliancy that has been embedded into the world of darkness since the very beginning, a la golden rule. To follow up on that, does anyone have opinions on how C20 in particular, I can't even really say how C20 has updated them because the Nuneheim really haven't been updated. So they cut out an art. Well, they cut out one art and one splat and then basically yeah. cut and pasted a lot of material from the old player's yeah. guide. So, you know, here we are 25, more than 25 years since their first appearance. And yeah, I don't know what to do with that because it's a little bit, I mean, it's disappointing to an extent that so many conversations related to representation and role-playing have come so far. And yet here we are with almost the same write-ups. They corrected some of the misspellings, which I was happy to see, but you know, otherwise, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I, whenever I was seeing the like things about C20, I was definitely getting similar feelings about that. And like, I enjoyed the fact that like they spelled things better and like did do some things, but I feel like in my opinion, when it comes to like indigenous perspective in the future of World of Darkness, like it's definitely a complicated concept and it's definitely something that isn't like a, you, I can't give a response that's like a catch all for obviously for like all indigenous groups because I can even, I can barely even give a response for my small community within the Cherokee Nation and within that, like within that whole area. But for me, I feel like the answer for like, to have better indigenous representation in world of darkness in general is literally just to talk to more indigenous people to interview and like work with people to work on the lore. I know Ia has more knowledge about specifically who they have hired, like world of darkness specifically has hired and some of their practices, but I'll let Ia give the the quote because it was, uh, it was such a good one that we had a couple days ago, but I, I just think the key is to actually like, not just have a seat at the table, but have like seats for different groups of people. And this isn't even just native indigenous peoples of the North Americas, but just like indigenous peoples everywhere. And with Changeling, when we're dealing with these spiritual beings that are everywhere, you know, it's like, there's a lot there more than just like indigenous American and more than just Western thinking wise. But yeah, I'll, I'll let Ia kind of respond to that. Yeah, the, the quote that Liam was referring to was simply hire collaborators, not consultants. Like, mm. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily, like um, having one person give uh, a stamp of approval doesn't work, <laughs> especially regarding like sensitivity stuff. It really takes indigenous people involved from the very beginning. And like, shout out to James Zambrano for being able to continue working for White Wolf uh, not White Wolf, but working for the various entities that go in and out of controlling licenses that is a whole complicated mess of World of Darkness. 
but like kudos to James for still like being able to push through despite being like kicked out of the team for voicing concerns and then being rehired and then whatever. As James says, I, it's not like they represent all indigenous people, <laughs> like they can't. So having more folks discuss and like work out how, you know, indigenous manifestations of the dreaming might occur, how they can be passed down and embodied in a way that is very specific to the changeling, the dreaming world. I mean, there, there are affordances of the game that can be emphasized. And Liam has definitely talked about all of those affordances, especially in regards to like running changeling games that focus on indigeneity. And I think one of the core aspects that I'll say is just that like it's super important to understand current goings-ons. Like indigeneity is a relationship to land and is like a, a complex kinship identity. And that's like its roots. But understanding how Native Americans and tribal nations operate within the United States, it, it's multifaceted, but tribes are not races. They're not racial identities. They are sovereign nations. And understanding how tribal rights work within the U.S. and understanding how banned politics works you know, for First Nations folks and the relationships to different indigenous people across the world and how UNICEF um, and UNDRIP have been adopted by different places and devalued by other countries. Uh, I think that's super important. And, you know, late in October, ICWA, which is Indian Child Welfare, was put on the chopping block at the Supreme Court to help incentivize and perpetuate the stealing and selling of indigenous children for private adoption agencies that has been perpetuated for over 100 years. That ICWA is really the only strong legislation that prevents that yeah that, that's just like one example of this sort of stuff and like the relationships to indigeneity and queerness and how indigenous like murdered and missing indigenous women and two-spirit people continues to affect indian country is tied directly to that as well as the rising violence and perpetuation of hate crimes against queer identities in the United States, like, this is nothing new. That quote you mentioned reminds me of a panel discussion that I saw last year with, it was various creators of color kind of coming together and talking about representation and role-playing. And one of them had a very good way of framing it where she basically said, you know, when anyone from a major company to a random fan approaches me with questions about representing my culture and my background in a game, I always have to tell them, if I see it, you're not asking for advice, you're asking for permission. And what that translates into for me is that even if you do have someone on your team, and even if that person is the primary author or a collaborator, that doesn't mean you suddenly have reached the end of your knowledge as someone not part of that community. And I, I am heartened to see this kind of rise in authors kind of saying, and I'll say that I do this myself when I do homebrew projects, putting a note that says, listen, you know, I am not a member of cultures that I'm representing here. I've done as much due diligence as I can, but please don't treat this as anything other than my own limited perspective on what I'm talking about. And it's a sort of walking back from a position of authority that I think a lot of people are hesitant to do for a variety of reasons. So having that humility is something that is also an essential part of the equation from the other side, I think, and welcoming in 
you know, viewpoints that you're not familiar with and allowing both the space for people to express themselves and acknowledging that it's never going to be a complete journey for yourself. Even if you present yourself as as much of an ally as possible, there's always going to be more for you to learn and more viewpoints for you to bring in. I just wanted to kind of comment on that because I feel like it's one of those things. And I think for me, like this is kind of off topic when it comes to role playing to some degree, but I've always been a big fan of fantasy and mythology and different types of stories. So for me, it's like these kind of go hand in hand, but it reminded me of how the author Rick Riordan of the Percy Jackson series for a long time, he was making the stories about the Greek pantheon and then Egyptian uh, and then, you know, Roman and the Norse. But what I thought was a really good thing of him to do. And I think it's really, it just shows his character, but it's also just a smart decision in my opinion, in many different ways, but also just like, giving a voice for people, but not not necessarily giving them the voice, but giving them the platform to do so if they want. Instead of trying to make more books where like these characters are going into the pantheon of these different cultures. I remember whenever he finished the Magnus Chase series, there was like speculation or whatever that he was going to go into like Aztec and Mexican mythology, even though, you know, Mexican people still exist and they still practice things. So it's not even... It's like, is this even mythology? But I think it was around that time or just right before that, that he started doing the Rick Riordan Presents thing. And I think that White Wolf would be, it would help them so much if they really just worked with indigenous role-playing societies or indigenous like role-playing companies. There are numerous. And I feel like if they worked with them to actually work on like the lore of the games themselves, I think that they could benefit from it and it would be so educational for everybody, but also just like give more platforms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it would just make better games. More fun. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. More, more accurate for sure. Yeah. More accurate, but I think it could also be more fun too on top of most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. More guilt free. (laughs) It also gives you a wider range of stories. I mean, yeah. You know, the assumption that every culture's stories and the characters in the stories, the values that those stories present, the assumption that those are all going to kind of fit into a single box is like, uh, not so much, you know? <laughs> so. Like, if you look at, like, the canonical Nunehi kiths we have, right? It's like some regions get, like, one, and some areas basically mm-hmm. have none. And you're like... If you were trying to run a game using, even as it's written, it's like this. This just doesn't work from a player choice. It's like here's your one choice, right? Like that doesn't. If you're engaging in the cultures, you get more. And again, I think part of that is a function of the fact that the two authors who originally conceived them were living in the mountains of North Carolina, so Mm -hmm. that was they they drew on what was available to them. But again, in in 25 years, (laughs) we could have had back in 1997. These people were trying. I get it, right? Like they were working, they did the best they could, I think, but. Yeah, I mean, you have to commend them on that. Like I will recognize that they definitely were, it's better than it could have been. You know, it's like, (laughs) in that I will give it to them. And I will say though, even then, it's so funny that a lot of the stuff in, in Werewolf and Changeling just kind of feel like they were just copy and pasted from the James Mooney book, which they do reference, and I'll give them <laughs> that, and it, which is great that they referenced, you know, and but like it, it still kind of feels like what they did was good. It's great that they added it, but like if they would have just done a little bit of interviewing, they could have gotten so much more. I, I, I think like even just context 
and, and maybe they did more. Maybe I'm discounting. I haven't done deep research into what they did at that point. Yeah. I do have a question, actually, that I don't know, in my brain it was related, but maybe it's not. One of the things that has consistently bugged me about the way the Nunhir are presented, even not really having a deep knowledge of the, the lore behind them, is they don't really seem like changelings to me. It seems like they're true fae without any human concerns or any human connections. And when people talk about the difficulty of integrating them into the setting in terms of relationship with the dreaming and the umbra, dreamers, getting medicine from nature, etc., etc., it's like... I would imagine if they were presented more as three-dimensional people rather than just these folkloric figures, that would give them a lot more dimension. Yeah, yeah, I think that you're spot on. And for anybody that is interested in looking at more content, walking away from Arcadia, the interview with James F. Sobrano uh, tackles a lot of the understandings and misunderstandings of indigenous culture and placing the impetus of Nunehi in actual, like, indigenous concerns, right? Maybe not something that they discussed, but, like, fire stewardship is super big. And, like, indigeneity in STEM is super big. Folks should check out all of the interviews with indigenous scholars out there in uh, ologies. The podcast host continues to promote like actual indigenous representation within those circles. Like it's not like there isn't a plethora of indigenous content out there. That's actually like by indigenous people and not just like weird writings about indigenous people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a question about the U S context. Like is the United States going through a big, um, in terms of settler culture and, and government interactions and all that is, are things going through a big shift in like demographic growth of indigenous peoples like is that happening in the u.s too i can't tell like it is here so there there has been a shift since the 60s in self-identified indigenous people or self-identified mm-hmm. native american people as as this like ethnic identity as far as like the actual growth of participation in like indigenous places i don't think that there really has been that big and, of and nothing big say 19 since the 1990s when like that the first book came out or anything yeah so okay I was trying to check because it's it's really changed here, but I'm not saying it's fixed at all, but it's changed here. So I'm just, right. I'm just curious if that is. I think that like literally since the since the Biden administration appointed Deb Holland yes. to mm-hmm. lead the BIA, like that was a big move. Especially since Donald Trump really like targeted indigenous people. Like that was one of his platforms. I mean, that's one of his like motivating forces for getting into any sort of public politics at all. So, I mean, just just specifically going after casino, but yeah. I was just going to note off of what you were saying, I also feel like awareness and like media representation and just like globalization of indigenous content is definitely contributing to, like as weird as it is to say this, I feel like TikTok has helped people learn more about indigenous culture and just people in general. Oh yeah. And so I feel like that's definitely a huge part of it as well. But I did want to note, I really liked what you said about like how the Nunehi are played like they're the actual beings, they're the actual like spirits and stuff and not like changeling. And that was such a good point. And I, I just feel like I wanted to like dive into that just for a second. I won't go too long into it. But like 
there's so much potential there for playing as like a changeling version of a Nunehi. It's complicated because like some of these spirits like Ware and we've kind of been talking about are just like stuff we're not supposed to talk about. But the concept of like losing imagination, losing dreaming, like losing even culture and language it's definitely a hard thing to talk about and it's definitely a thing it's it's a triggering trauma thing for a lot of people in some ways having imagination and dreaming be um a part of being something that's lost as far as changeling and playing indigenous changeling is such a there's so much potential there that i just don't think is being tapped into and i can go more into that later if need be but yeah i think you're pointing to some degree to there, there is, I think I can say this, a tendency among changeling players to, to treat it as an escapist fantasy. And there's absolutely a time and a place for that, but not at the expense of all of the issues of balance and humanity and figuring out how to keep imagination and culture and glamour alive within your daily life. Because for me, that's always been the point of the game. It is an educational experience about how to do that in your life. And the role-playing game kind of kicks that up to 11, but, you know, it's not about vanishing into high fantasy. That's what Dungeons and Dragons is for. <laughs> so going back to the, the idea about having fully fleshed out people as your protagonists, that's really important. That's what makes the game itself and makes it distinctive. So, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And that's honestly, that's what's always drawn me to Changeling and just World of Darkness in general is because you're definitely spot on about like, there's so much opportunity for emotional growth, I think, in World of Darkness, because like, I mean, you're dealing with such heavy stuff. And even if it is a fictional version of our Earth, it's still our planet, it's still our culture, it's still our world. And so there's these dark aspects that and and you know and like you're saying like escapism isn't inherently bad that that is what D is for it's like you need a break from that but with changeling i feel like there's so much potential and i've experienced this myself just running changeling games or running a changeling a campaign specifically like a long-term game was just like the emotional potential to really heal even if it's just your character healing, there is so much potential there for you to like gain something from that. And uh, I think the terms like gamification for like things like role playing games and board games and stuff like that, but it's very cathartic. And the thing there is like, uh, it's hard to even explain, but like there, there's so much potential with that when it comes to indigenous storytelling and indigenous characters within playing changeling and that's why i really think even even if your campaign if you're if, if your um if your game is going to have um i i keep saying campaign sorry about that chronicle is that the <laughs> correct term for changeling i'm trying to remember that is the official term yeah, yeah. it yeah whatever, it's fine. Um, but uh, you know you know even if you're playing a game with indigenous characters even if it's just an NPC, an NPC with just depth, it's not just the character in the woods that says protect the trees. <laughs> you know, it's like at that point, you're just a sign. What's the difference between your character being a sign in the forest that says don't burn down trees like Smokey Bear versus like bad caricatures and stereotypes? And I just feel like there's just so much potential with World of Darkness and Changeling, which is why it's, in my opinion, just such a amazing experience and there's there's so much that could be done to make it i don't want to say better but just different 
or maybe more more helpful for the players as a as an experience exactly more helpful like learning experience whether that's emotional learning or literally educational just like historical context is always nice but yeah and in particular with with the Nunehi, like I mean, I remember reading the player's guide for the first time as a suburban white kid from the Northeast like, and having very little knowledge about any of the groups or any of the legends being described. But importantly, using that as a springboard to go to the library and go looking for other resources, like that's the value of it to me. Not, I guess what I want to say is e- even as someone who's not from a culture that's being represented there, I still find it valuable because it inspires me in a very sort of glamoury kind of way to go and learn more about the world. That's not something that you get from, frankly, most things, role-playing games or otherwise, like, you know. Yeah, gamification really can, I, I guess if you want to call it that, provide motivation in interesting ways. Because like it gives you, and this is kind of how I interpret a lot of what Wade has already talked about, like, a lens in which to view the world that can kind of provide some sort of separation as well as point to the like interconnectedness mm-hmm. of certain concepts and identities and utilizing that lens that it can really provide help in motivating at least myself into doing research. Like I'll, I'll take a class on Native American education and suddenly like there's a context for like playing you know native vampires in different contexts right like it, it sounds almost embarrassing to like talk about but there there is that association with gaming that can be super positive and rewarding and to go through an entire campaign and a story to, to get that kind of reward like all that dopamine i think that it, it makes sense that that sort of association could be made yeah i also find there's a changeling especially like because you're kind of different people do this differently and at different times, but you're kind of in some way thinking about what this person's thinking, like your character, right? Or even if you're storyteller or having PCs, you're thinking about their motivations. You're looking at least trying to look from their perspective, which is not the same as being them, but can sort of open doors to realizations you might not have had if you're just learning about something more sort of arm's length. It's like embodiment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is not the same as just because you played a character doesn't mean you actually know what somebody's life who's like that is like, but no, I think it's it's an extra step from like reading a book. Right. It's about perspective. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty, I think, of like just a lot of different forms of media and storytelling in general is just like anytime I write anything or I watch anything or I read anything, like if I can leave feeling like I've learned something about someone else, whether that person is similar to me or not. The beauty of that is being able to, I think, just learn and just be in that person's, not not be that person or not understand that person, but just definitely um, empathize more. And that, that I think that should be kind of the goal is just to try and empathize and try and have better understanding, not necessarily complete because we might not ever have that, but just better empathy and understanding in general. I'd like to segue into the question with a capital Q, which I know a lot of people listening to this will probably be listening for. <laughs> so from your perspective, should people who are not from an indigenous background play Nunahi characters? And in relation to what I had said earlier about permission, I think no is a perfectly acceptable answer. But if the answer is 
yes or yes, but what do you think are some of the due diligence things that one ought to do to even approach being able to play a character in a respectful way? I think I can start just by pointing to what Wado was talking about earlier. And I was honestly surprised that he talked about non-Indigenous folks playing Indigenous characters. And, you know, he talks about how some folks shouldn't do it, perhaps, or it can go into, like, instances of cultural appropriation. But as you were pointing out, the due diligence that is important in playing these characters is, it's tricky. Because if you do know Indigenous folks, the impetus shouldn't be put on them to do the emotional labor of educating a non-Indigenous person. Don't make them roll a banality check. (laughs) (laughs) There there are resources out there online, especially prioritizing Indigenous voices is super important. Find the folks that are already talking about this stuff and educating folks about Indigeneity coming from your specific location or the place that you want to set your game, whether you're a storyteller or player. There's connecting to that indigeneity, to that like public facing indigeneity is super important. And I think one of the biggest shortfalls of the world of darkness is promoting this sort of like cultural idea. Like this is trying to like capitalize and selling like indigenous traditional beliefs, even if they're like warped or radically different. And I, I think that there there are respectful ways to depict those sorts of like cultural ideas, but there's also like this strong pull for people wanting to use like quote unquote traditional stories Mm -hmm. um, or traditional sacred practices that might not actually be given to you. And that's the thing too, right? Like if, if there's an indigenous person in your life that has a valid connection to the kinship systems that make up a indigenous cultural community, they can give you stuff. And with permission, you can use that specific stuff in your games, especially if you're not capitalizing off of it. Um, but even if you are, like maintaining those sorts of real connections are important. And there's different community cultural protocols that are directly connected to that. So when folks give someone a story that isn't, you know, they give an indigenous person from a different community a story for a lot of traditions, like it's important to talk when you when you tell that story, like you say where you got that story from. Sometimes the you know the cultural protocols are different. And community members don't actually want shout outs. But, you know, that that precedent is there. So understanding those sorts of connections are important. Understanding that, like, there are things that people give the public as far as perspectives go. And I'm not talking about sacred stories or medicine formula or anything like that. But I'm talking about stuff that people give the public in regards to pointing to activism that's going on. Right pointing to current things that are facing their communities that they want people to know about. Talk about the gold poisoning going on in Diné, the the stuff that goes on in like Navajo Nation in the Southwest and like the eco climate changes and stuff out there, like raise awareness of that whole pipeline and ICWA. These are the kinds of stories that like, or the the current events that you can point to during games to actually educate folks. Mm. Without, you know, there can be a native person, there can be a new, even a Nunehi that has that is directly connected to those stories. And you can use what is written. Hopefully there's a better write-up in the future. And, you know, maybe, <laughs> I know folks have been talking about trying to get, you know, Indigenous folks in the storyteller's vault. It's not simple. <laughs> it's not easy. 
but it's necessary. I mean, I, I, everything you just said, I'm, you can't hear me nodding quite as much as I am on the microphone, but yeah, like, absolutely. And Changeling in particular, this is partially maybe a function of the fan bases and the way the games have kind of evolved over time. But I would argue that for as much as Werewolf has seemed to kind of explore this territory, I think Changeling as a structure is better suited for it because you can tell so many different kinds of story about engaging with those issues to accommodate lots of different people. You know, not everybody wants to be a furry chainsaw. Yeah. What a radical thing to say. (laughs) I guess mage would be the other one that you could. Yeah. Mage, though, I mean, mage is tough because you're already kind of baked into the meta plot, which doesn't always serve the story as well. I don't know. That's mm-hmm. that's for a mage the podcast discussion. Yeah, but no, changeling is a big one that needs more of it. It's a big open field. Changeling is the individualized expression of societal stories, where mage is like about individual perspective of set in stone stories like of the meta plot i want to see you use a convenient segue and ask do you have any media that you would recommend whether it's books films tv whatever that would help people kind of see how these issues are presented in a nuanced and informative and positive kind of way yeah i mean there's a lot of different projects and uh different forms of media that are out there, I think. And there's there's more coming out every year. A more recent one is um, FX's Reservation Dogs. Uh, I said that like it was an advertisement. So FX, if you're listening. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. But um, but like FX's Reservation Dogs is by uh, Sterling Harjo, and it is uh, absolutely fantastic. It's a series. Uh, oh, yeah, Rutherford Falls. And then Dark Winds is another series. Yeah, really anything by Sterling Harjo. Um, I think uh, Poetry by Joy Harjo. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people might think it's strange to uh, use poetry as a uh, influence for a changeling game, but I think it's perfect. But yeah, I... Anything by Joy Harjo is wonderful, I, I personally think. I will gently point listeners to the minisode where I read poems one cold night because we needed filler material one week, so I'm in support of poetry. That That is excellent. <laughs> yes. I, I think if you said, what, what here, let's talk about poetry in the world of darkness, you're going to say Changeling. Yeah. I was just going to say, shout out to Liam. He's in a creative writing program and writes really cool poetry, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah. If you need more filler episodes, maybe like let me just throw them under the bus. We we can happily throw one in the show notes as well. Yeah, if you need uh if you need someone to talk about how to use love poetry as a form of storytelling for a changeling, I don't know how I would describe that, but it's definitely something I've been researching lately. Anyways, but yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other forms of media. I mean, there's so many. Uh, one artist I just definitely recommend just to follow because he's he's kind of he's a family friend of ours. He's super into uh, a lot of I don't know if he specifically does do any role playing. His name's Roy Boney Jr. and he's actually done um, cover art for like Marvel's comic book series Marvel Voices. And although I don't know if he's ever specifically played role playing games, he's made comic books. He is definitely just something for people to see, especially for like Cherokee artists. Um, just to kind of get influence from that. I definitely want to raise concern about reading stuff that's written by like scholars, you know, Mm. 
like understanding who the audience for certain books are. There's been some like recent literature that like might be important to like raise awareness for certain issues, but not actually like valuing indigenous voices more than just talking about valuing them. Yeah. From an academic perspective, so part of my background training was in anthropology and one of the sort of classic works is by Keith Basso, Portrait of the White Man. And from my side, it's uncomfortable, but in a good way to have that lens turned on yourself. So the book is kind of, he worked with, um, I think he was a school teacher in an Apache community for many years and kind of collected these different ways that the figure of the white man was presented in like humorous exchanges and storytelling, you know, kind of like the stereotype of how, how a white person behaves. And for any, frankly, white role player, it's a good read to kind of have a bit of that humility that I was talking about earlier and say, your, your own culture always looks like the default one when you're inside it. So to have somebody present it to you as, as something strange and external, you know, it can be a very eye-opening experience. Totally. And also Robin Wall Kimmerer, while we're on the subject of scholars, is just fantastic. Yeah. And I mean, even old, older stuff um, written by Vine Deloria Jr. Yeah, I, I highly recommend like you wrote a lot of stuff for the wider audience. And he interacted with, I mean, he, he's kind of like the founder of Native American studies or like the godfather. But yeah, Custer died for your sins. It's a really good introduction to kind of understanding like indigeneity in the U.S. context specifically. I was also thinking about music as a possible i don't know i feel like music always kind of helps ease people into the headspace they need to be in in order to and not you know not bullshit music <laughs> like actual actual interesting complex music created by artists from different cultures i always find to be helpful yeah dj shub and hallucination highly recommend they kind of exploded within the last few years mm. uh tanya Tagak. Oh, I love uh, her. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. There was a, a tweet that she did where she was like, this guy got in my face about breastfeeding in public, so I just throat sang at him until he went away. That's beautiful. She's wonderful. I, I, yeah. I got to take this time, now that we're talking about music, I can't believe I didn't think about this. There's a whole album of like kind of contemporary uh, Cherokee music, it's pretty much completely sung. It, it is completely sung in Cherokee by a variety of different artists, um, including the son of Wade that was on here earlier, who's oh, our wow. cousin, uh, Agali Sieg. Uh, so the album is called uh, which, I mean, it just translates as uh, performers, but there's more to it than that, but it's a wonderful album, and um, I just butchered it on uh, your podcast because I'm reading it and I'm not like thinking it. But it's a great album with a lot of good like contemporary uh, Cherokee musicians specifically. So I definitely recommend that. Right on. Yeah. So if either of you have more things you want to bring up, otherwise we can start doing the wrap up portion. I think if you guys wanted to do another episode at some point. I think there's definitely room for it on the like linguistic side and like maybe even talking about very specific aspects of like Nunehi and yeah. kind of like the Cherokee context, but also like mechanics, you know, breaking stuff down. Yeah, because this was kind of the broad, the Nunehi as written in Changeling, which is what, like many cultures <laughs> across a very large area. <laughs> 
yeah it's just the fact the word is cherokee is the most is hilarious to me it's like you're talking about this complex umbrella term of all of these things which some of them don't even fit under well one of the kiths is inuit which is a whole other yeah (laughs) at least from canadian perspective like white canadian perspective i don't know if that's it's like why is this in this group but yeah they there's they call them families right and you know the mimigueshi and there's like water babies and like other rock giants i think they were drawing on the haudenosaunee confederacy although they have a very specific kind of manifestation in Cherokee. which is hilarious yeah yeah i was gonna say like they're similar to the cherokee stuff but even then it's very different and i also think and this isn't necessarily something that we need to talk about in detail but the whole like even just the water babies thing is like word for word just one of the most random parts of the james mooney book that just like he heard a story about it and he wrote it down and then changeling was like let's make it into a kith and it's like i guess it makes sense but in my brain at the time i was just like why this one like i mean that is being consistent at least with the european kithane that make no sense and are really brought in like the russian slua and the (laughs) (laughs) yeah that might that came across as just negligence and yeah i will say one thing that and this is just kind of an idea i have for um a game specifically or a module even but i think one easy way to kind of help non-native people get introduced into indigenous storytelling and indigenous gaming for a changeling game like if the module is made by an indigenous person i think would just be playing an indigenous changeling or a, a nanehi right but have them having them be uh, at large which is like a term it's a term that basically just means like an indigenous person that isn't currently residing in their community or they're way raised away from the community mm-hmm. and to me that is one of the the perfect ways to play changeling and i kind of hinted at this earlier but like just because you're playing a character that is indigenous but doesn't know anything or knows very little or nothing about their indigenous heritage about their indigenous culture because they're separated which of course i think is like a lovely way of playing with the concepts of like Changeling the Dreaming, but also Changeling the Lost as well. Although I recognize Changeling the Lost is separate, but just the, uh, yeah, just the whole concept of reconnecting. And playing a Nanehi is such an interesting way for that to me, because it's like you're connected with your indigenous culture and like lineage, but in a different way. I I just think there's a lot of potential there. And it's also just a good way because you're playing a character that knows very little, if anything about their own heritage but having a module that perfectly and maybe not perfectly but like at least has the potential to teach and have the characters go through kind of a Mm -hmm. journey that actually touches on a question that we had earlier in a very specific way which is a listener brought up the question of like whether there's anything salvageable within the nuni and somebody's response was to try to evoke something that is more individually expressed, something that is more malleable, so it can fit different contexts better. And I think that although that might have been a, a better way to approach it in general, it doesn't give as much affordance to actually reflect a very specific community. So understanding that like 
Nanyehi coming from like a, a Cherokee community, or even a Nanyehi connecting to a Cherokee community would evoke very specific stories. And the reflection of those sorts of Nunehi families that have been written about accidentally lend themselves to certain stories that I think should be evoked. Um, and we can talk about that later, but the whole connection for indigenous, reconnecting indigenous folks, I think that that really exemplifies how the game structure can lend itself to a specific community in a way that these like free form indigenous Galane sort of nebulous identity made purposefully vague would still likely lend itself to players only going with what the default understanding would be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is usually what mm -hmm. folks get from TV and Westerns and stuff until super recently. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting counterpoint to the usual... I think that there's a move within the fan base to have it be more like Lost, in particular with the way that the kiths are structured. And in the balance... Overall, it's probably a good thing, but only if people have the tools to bear all of what you just said in mind, you know? Yeah. At the very least, with a lost approach, you'd need the, what is it, the Z splat? The, right, right, right. Right. You'd still need a bunch of them, just as much as you need the kits and changeling now. Right. Well, and doing that, really, it, it just reinforces the default, right? Which, societally, the default is a white, cis, heterosexual male, you know? So and understanding that there's a lot of assumptions that always go into the creation of mechanics, worldviews, games, and Changeling the Lost manifests a very specific idea that evokes kind of neo-pagan or a settler perspective of European Celtic culture, right? Mm -hmm. With the seasonal manifestations. Yeah, I don't want to get too much into knocking Lost territory, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I don't think it's bad. In fact... Yeah. I remember borrowing Wade's Changeling the Lost book and like approaching that as, you know, I, I thought that Changing the Lost would be where it's at. A lot of people yeah. do. Oh, that, uh, sorry. There's just one more question I had and it should have come in earlier, but uh, do you think there's a way to incorporate the inanime into <laughs> sort of Nunahi type stories or is that just inanime or very European focused? I, I think that they should. I think that they should manifest in a different way. Understanding the notion of fire within the you know European traditional alchemical Western occult tradition is very different than the treatment of the nurturing fire that provides communication to the hearts of the people and the ecosystem. And you know, it's really been uncovered within the like Western consciousness, at least within the more scientific community in the United States of the understanding of fire stewardship being one of the primary means of controlling and fostering and stewarding ecosystems that, you know, when settlers came to the United States, that there was this understanding that like, this was the, the promised land or whatever. And although there's like a lot of, for a long time, it was just understood that that kind of concept was evoking a very specific heretical sort of zealotrous Christian ideology, but there is reason to believe that there are, you know, food forests. Oh, yeah. uh, the Prata, all the way in South America to the strategic burnings in what's now Canada and the United States used to monitor populations of keynote species like wolves, for example. Mm -hmm. 
very specific answer. <laughs> yep. But yeah, I, I think that it's, there definitely needs to be those stories told, especially if Nunehi are supposed to be getting their glamour from the land. I definitely think there's room for that. And I'm basically just reiterating what you you were saying now that I'm actually saying it. But there's so many stories about, like, I, I don't know a ton about the anime, just because, but, like, from what I understand, like, the different types are, like, different types. There's, like, an el- elemental ones, but there's also, like, um, aren't there, there's, like, human-shaped ones, if I'm correct, right? There, um, there's yeah. sort of human-shaped elements. Like, their kiths, in a sense, are different, are the different elements, but they all can take a humanish shape. There's also the the created, right? The mannequin yeah. type. Yeah. Yeah, and they, and they all have a, a natural... The mannequins are, like, only created, but there's, like, a created versus natural distinction. Crofted. Crofted. Which is, like, the sort okay. of, like, Seelie versus Unseelie. We will have an anime episode in the future as well. Yes. <laughs> I totally look forward to that, because my understanding of them is kind of limited. They've always mm-hmm. seemed super interesting. They really yeah. got done dirty in C20. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I was just going to say, I think that it'd be fascinating to talk about, like, what what are the villains in an indigenous changeling game? But I, because oh, we kind yeah. of, we, we talked about that before with Wade, and he had some really good points, but I feel like there's so many options. I, I messaged Ia, and I was just saying, like, you know, just like, the, the villain is the US government, and I'm kind of joking, I, but like... There are so many options, though, and that, that's a whole other podcast, like, episode in oh, and of itself. Yeah, I won't jump on that, or that's another two hours. Yeah. The possibility is out there that this will turn into a series. I'm just, I'm speaking that into possibility. Yes, that'd be great. Could do, yeah, more sp- more focused on specific topics that we've sort of covered broadly. But uh, I think maybe we should wrap up. Is there any place people can find you online? social media, that type of thing? Well, now that Twitter seems to be heading towards the black hole, Discord community, reach out through the Changeling the Podcast Discord. My DMs are open. I might not address everything, but it's probably better just to tag me in the chat. And, and Liam? Does... Yeah, I mean, uh, Discord works for me. Um, I People can find me on Facebook, although right now that's mostly just my where I go to give happy birthdays to random family members on di- uh, <laughs> on different days. But I, I do check it frequently enough. People can find me at my email. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much always free to have a conversation. I'm acting like I'll become famous after this. Uh, no, I, but like, uh, yeah, but I, I'm, I'm always free for a conversation or something. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for both for uh, coming on. Um, this was great. And yeah, let's, let's, Hopefully we can do something to follow up coming up. Yeah. So yeah, you can find us uh, on online, Changeling the Podcast on Facebook, on our Facebook page. We're on Mastodon now uh, at changelingpod at dice.camp. Uh, you can email us, podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. You can patronize us on Patreon, patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. And our Discord does not have a handy, a nice to read out link, but we'll have a link to that on our page in the show notes. So yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for coming on, both of you. Many thanks. Yeah, what well you. I, I continue to be Josh. I remain, as always, Puka. And uh, be careful whose names you say and under what context. Yes. Always sensible advice. We strongly encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode if you're curious about the stories behind the Nunyehi and to do additional research on your own to learn more. 
Hopefully, conversations around indigeneity, representation, and connections with Changeling will continue in our Discord community, the link to which you can also find in the show notes. If you'd like to help us create more episodes like this, please consider signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast to give some support, as the following assortment of wonderful folks have already done. Derek, Roz Caboose, Sanchiger, Sija, and Terry Robinson. Feel free to also tell your friends and arch-nemesis about our show, and or leave us a review on the podcast platform of your greatest convenience. Thanks again, and until next time, keep on dreaming.